letters get all that much press because, because they're so short. Um, and, and I would say maybe that Jude gets the least amount of press of, of the four um, because of where it's located in the Bible. Uh, it is sandwiched between John's three epistles and the last book of the Bible, Revelation, which uh, obviously gets uh, lots of readership, lots of uh, mentions uh, in sermons or in study. Uh, but Jude often gets overlooked. So if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, if you want to turn them over upside down, open them from the back side, you'll be pretty close to the book of Jude. Uh, we're going to read the entire book this morning as we study. Uh, but, but a funny thing kind of happened yesterday. A student texted me, Parker Dunham, sitting right up here, texted me yesterday. He said, hey, you're, you're preaching tomorrow. I said, yeah, preaching through the book of Jude. And his response was, what's that? And, and he was only kidding, of course, but... The Jew doesn't get taught on all that much, doesn't get preached very often. And to be often, or, and to be, to be uh, kind of real, there's quite a few things in this book that are a little bit strange, a little bit weird. Um, we're going we're gonna to read some of these things, and some of them you maybe have never heard before, some, some kind of random stories through the book of, of Jude. But we are going to dig into to some of that weird stuff this morning. We are going to try and familiarize ourselves with, with this little book. And, and as we study this morning, verse by verse, we will find that the truth that Jude wants to share with his readers is, is pretty straightforward. And it's an important challenge for us this morning as, as followers of Jesus. So this morning, we are going to divide Jude into four different sections that will, that will outline our study. And so here's what those four outlines are. The first one is that we are going to look at the person of Jude in verses 1 and 2. And then Jude explains that there is a problem, and then he gives the prescription to try and fix the problem, and then we will conclude with the phrase at the very end. Before we dig into the passage this morning, uh, I want to share with you uh, a resource. Um, there's something called the Bible Project, and uh, they are uh, a collection of videos, and I would describe them as uh, brief video commentaries on every book of the Bible. Um, so if you haven't ever seen one of these videos, uh, I would encourage you, they are on uh, Right Now Media, which is a good Christian resource, uh, but a lot of them are on YouTube as well. Um, but if you want to go and, and take a look at the Bible Project, I use the video about the book of Jude quite a bit in my study this week. And they, they are uh, illustrated, um, just some great drawings to help uh, kind of bring to life each book of the Bible. And uh, they, are, they are really well done, just a really, really good resource, um, completely free. You can get them on YouTube. Um, and so check those out. Uh, maybe later today, look at the one from the book of Jude. And like I said, I used it a lot this week in my study for, for this book. Uh, but here we go, Jude chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of, of James. And so let's stop right there and begin to talk about who this guy Jude is. So if you were to read the original language of the Bible in, in Hebrew, Jude's name is translated Judah. And in the Greek, his name is Judas. And so, anyone who wants to write a book of the Bible doesn't want to have the name Judas. It would be like having the name Adolf or Osama. And, and so Judas just goes by his nickname, Jude. And the first thing we learn about Jude is that he is a follower of Jesus and related to a guy named James. 
Now, this introduction is interesting because we know that Jude's brother James, who also wrote another book of the Bible, the book of James, James is a half-brother of Jesus, which means that Jude is also a half-brother of Jesus. Same mom, different dad. But, but why wouldn't Jude just say that? Why, why the different distinction? I think from the very beginning, Jude wants to make an important point. That although he is the brother of Jesus, he identifies himself as his servant, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is his master. And you better believe that no dude wants to call his brother master and Lord unless he is absolutely sure that he is, in fact, God's son. Andy Stanley, a, a famous preacher, mentions often in his preaching that one of the proofs that Jesus is who he says he is that doesn't get mentioned enough is the fact that two of Jesus' brothers proclaim that Jesus is God. And we could add on to that and add more stock to this, which is the fact that both James and Jude weren't followers of Jesus to begin with, as, as Morris mentioned. They weren't, they weren't believers. They weren't really for sure that their brother was the Son of God took Jesus raising from the dead. It wasn't until after his resurrection for his brothers to truly believe that he was who he said he was, that he is God. And I don't know that we, we can blame them all that much, right? Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, Jude is uh, a book of the Bible referred to as a, a general epistle. There's a handful of general epistles in the New Testament. And, and along with most of the other general epistles, uh, Jude is not written to a specific audience like the Romans or like the Corinthians. Instead, Jude, Jude is writing to a group of, of Messianic Jews. He's writing to a group of, of Christians, maybe at a particular church, uh, but maybe just more in general. But what we know about these Christians, about these Jews, is that they had extensive knowledge of, of the Hebrew Bible. They would have been good Christian students. They would have known what the Hebrew text had to say, as well as other Jewish literature. And so that's who Jude is, is writing to in this, in this book. Let's keep going, verse 2. He says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied I had a, a Bible college professor at Ozark say that based on verse 2, Jude is in a bad mood whenever he pens this letter. And you may be thinking the same thing that I was thinking. Hey, hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Just take a sad song and make it better. That's not what I was thinking. How in the world can you tell from verse 2 that, that Jude is in a bad mood? Uh, he says, mercy, peace, and, and love. Those are all, all good things. But what he doesn't say is, is grace. Why, why would Jude, omitting the word grace, mean that he is in a bad mood? It's maybe a little bit of a stretch, but it's really not all that normal. Of the 14 letters in the New Testament that begin with a salutation, only two letters don't include the word grace in that salutation. James is the other one, and he just says, he says, greetings. And so Jude, what, what's wrong? Why, why no grace? Why did you leave out grace? Jude, why the long face? Hey, hey, Jude, why the bad disposition? 
Well, it doesn't take him long to let us know the problem. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager, very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He said, I mean, I really wanted to write about this, but I, but I keep seeing this issue that keeps popping up in the church, and so I, I really need to address it. There, there are some more pressing matters at hand. We really need to, to talk about this. And he keeps going in verse 4. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so the problem is that some false teachers have, have crept into the church. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says they have, have wormed their way in. And so Jude is pleading with this church to, to conf- contend for, for the faith. To stand up for the things that they believe in. And then we jump into this next section, verses 5 through 19. And, and this is where we maybe see some stories that are maybe a little bit strange, a few things that maybe start to make us scratch our head a little bit. Uh, but essentially what Jude is doing over these next few verses is that he wants to prove a point, that these false teachers need to be dealt with. And so he just gives... Illustration after illustration of why they need to be dealt with. And so let's look five all the way through 19. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Canaan, of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam from their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the servant from Adam, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. <coughs> but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So as if this simple challenge to guard against false teachers wasn't enough, Jude jumps into to making a case against these false teachers by reminding the church how God has dealt with corrupt leaders. And he's actually pretty, pretty organized in how he, he shares some of these examples. He, he shares two sets of, of three different Old Testament examples to, to warn the church to stay away from these false teachers and that their presence shouldn't be a surprise. And so we're just going to kind of run through these really quick and kind of explain why Jude references each of these different stories. And so our first trio of Old Testament examples, we could call the, the, the rebellious people who receive divine justice. And we read about them in verses 5 through 10. He begins by talking about the, the Israelites as they are, are rebelling in, in the wilderness in, in Numbers chapter 14. They, they begin to complain to God, wishing that they had never been rescued from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so God punished them and didn't allow them to enter into the promised land. And eventually they died in the middle of nowhere. And then he brings up a story about angels who are imprisoned for rebellion until they face God's justice. And he's referring to the interpretation of a story in Genesis chapter 6. But this story is offered in the popular Jewish work called First Enoch. And in this story, the sons of God are interpreted to refer to angels who rebelled against God and then had sex with women. This contributes to the wickedness of the world and leads to God's decision to send a global flood. And then he links this story to the third example of the ruin of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, where violent men tried to have sex with angels. And both of these stories highlight the rebellion against God's order that leads to sexual immorality. And then he gives us kind of this bonus example from another popular Jewish text referred to as the Testament of Moses. And so like Enoch, this wasn't part of the Old Testament scriptures. It was a, it was a creative retelling of Moses' final days and words based on, on the text from Deuteronomy, based on the book from Daniel. And so in this section that Jude quotes from, Moses has died and and there's a good angel, Michael, who is refuting accusations made by the devil himself about Moses. But Michael decides to leave final judgment for God. And so then he transitions to the second trio of rebellious, second trio of Old Testament examples, the rebellious people who corrupt others in verses 11 through 13. And he begins with Cain. We know who Cain is. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed his brother Abel. But then he went on to build a city where, where violence reigns, where violence is the way that you accomplished anything that you wanted done. And then he talks about a guy named Balaam, where we read about him in Numbers chapter 22 through 25 and chapter 31. And Balaam was recruited by an enemy king to bring a curse on, on the Israelites. But he had some trouble with his talking, talking donkey, and God prevented him from cursing the fool. But eventually he lured the Israelites into idolatry and sexual corruption. And then Korah's rebellion. 
Numbers chapter 16, the Levite, who led a rebellion against Moses that ended in disaster for others. Because of Korah's rebellion, over 15,000 people were killed. And then Jude concludes the second tree with a barrage of Old Testament images that describe these false teachers. They are like selfish shepherds in Ezekiel chapter 34. They're like clouds without rain, Proverbs chapter 25. They're like wild waves or wandering stars from Isaiah 57 and 14. These, self te- these false teachers, their, their self-absorption b- betrays their claim to follow Jesus. And so they create chaos wherever they go. And then he ends this warning with, with two final warnings. The, cur- the first comes again from another from the popular Jewish writing of First Enoch, which, which claimed to came, contain the visions of the Old Testament figure, Enoch, who we read about in the Bible, a descendant of Adam. And, and so Jude is quoting from the opening chapter of Enoch, which itself is quoting from another, a number of Old Testament passages about the final day of God's judgment. And then he matches that ancient warning with a more recent one from, from the apostles, Peter, John, and, and Paul, all warned at different times of the dangers of false teachers. They were all echoing Jesus' early warning about the same thing. Now, these these stories may seem strange to us, but to Jewish readers who, who were raised on these stories, it's a good reminder that the behavior of false teachers has ancient roots. And it's through some of these stories, especially when uh, a book of the Bible maybe quotes some extra canonical books of the Bible, like First uh, Enoch or the, the Testament of Moses. Some, some people have issues with that whenever they come to read the book of, of Jude. But if I could just say really quickly, just because a, a book of, just because a book isn't the Bible doesn't mean that it's not important. And so I would kind of liken it to us reading uh, books about our faith. There are lots of uh, Christian living books out there that are, that are very beneficial to, to us whenever we read them. They help us along in our faith. And, and so I think that there were lots of Jewish texts that even though they weren't inspired to be scripture, they were still important. They still had uh, a lot of influence on those who read them whenever it came to their, their faith. But this whole section is pointing to the fact that these false teachers need to be dealt with. Jude's approach to dealing with the false teachers is, is a little different in this passage than, than what you might expect. Because he, he's not confronting their theology, but, but instead he's confronting their way of life. Jude isn't focused on the things that they know as much as their moral, moral choices. He isn't as worried about the things that they are teaching as much as he is worried as about what they are doing. And so here's, here's the problem. These false teachers, not just that they're in the church, that is a problem, but, but these false teachers change the grace of God into a license for sin. That's what it says back in verse 4. He says, I'd like to talk to you about salvation, which would, which would be just such a heartwarming letter. But instead, we've got to talk about the people who have moved into the church and are using the grace of God as an example to as an excuse to do whatever they want, whenever they want, without any consequences. So these false teachers change the grace of God into a license for sin, and they reject the authority of Jesus. 
verse 4 says, they, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, these people reject authority. Verse 18, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And the problem, problems that Jude was facing aren't all that different from the problems that we face today. The world would, would tell us that freedom is doing whatever you want, whenever you want, without any consequences. And I heard a preacher one time say that what's really frightening to me is when Christians take this definition of freedom, they baptize it, and they call it grace. And that's what Jude is, is dealing with. People who aren't really willing to submit to the authority of, of Jesus. People who are, who are changing the grace of God to, to make an excuse to do whatever they want. We often are faced with people who, who may speak quite piously about God and their faith, but mock him with their behavior. For people who consistently pursue a lifestyle marked by sin are in effect mocking God. They are willfully ignoring his requirements to be holy as he is holy. And they are treating lightly his threat of judgment for such behavior. These false teachers have a a misunderstanding of of grace. I think sometimes we fall into that same trap. Or we think that maybe, you know what, I probably have a better idea for my life than what Jesus wants me to do. And it's really easy to push that aside, to try and ignore that, to just reject the authority that Jesus is supposed to have over my life. But we can't really understand grace until we understand freedom. And so that leads us to the prescription. Jude chapter, verse 23, or 20 through 23. Here's what it says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude's challenge all the way back from verse 3 is to contend for the faith. And so the best way to minimize the influence of the corrupt teachers is to build your life on the most holy faith, which is the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. And on that foundation, we are to build ourselves through the dedication of prayer by devoting ourselves to the love of God through obedience. So there's this misunderstanding of grace, but in order to understand grace, then you have to understand freedom. But if you want to understand freedom, then we have to change the definition. Jesus is our Savior. That is the good news of of the Bible. And that it, it is. It is great news. That is why we come each and every day, to each and every Sunday, to, to gather, to celebrate, to worship who God is. Because of the salvation that we have through him. But it doesn't stop there. He is also our, our Lord. 
And when Jesus is our Savior and Lord, the definition of freedom changes. It is not do whatever you want, whenever you want, without any consequences. Instead, freedom is being a slave to Christ. And remember, that's how Jude started, all the way back in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus, a a doulos, a, a slave of Christ Jesus. And this new definition of freedom means following his commands even when we don't agree with them or we don't understand them or, or think that they're old-fashioned or, or think that it's really not that big of a deal. This new definition of freedom means giving up your, your opinions, your rights, your dreams to, to bow your knee to the king. The book of Jude can be boiled down to this simple truth. God's grace demands obedience. Jude isn't focused on our thinking as much as he is our our actions, the things that that we are doing. I see why this summer, one of the main speakers said this about obedience. God doesn't speak to be heard. God speaks to be obeyed. God doesn't speak to be heard. Whenever God speaks, he speaks to be obeyed. And for Jude, loving Jesus equals obeying Jesus. Loving Jesus equals obeying Jesus. Reminding us of that sentiment from Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey me. 